District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Can the federal government create impediments to public lands access? Today's episode will explore that topic more. And the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Today, I've brought on Benjamin Burr, executive director of the Blue Ribbon Coalition and formerly a Senate staffer, to talk about the implications of the federal government creating rules that sound very friendly to public land users, but in fact turn out to be very problematic and very restrictive to those who like to off-road and even hunt and fish. So we will explore that and some of the portfolio set of issues that Ben's organization is working on. They've been tracking closures in Moab. They've been tracking closures all over the country. We talk about conservation areas in Montana and Wyoming. We talk about 30 by 30. And we also talk about something we think that would actually garner bipartisan opposition against is new guidelines for film permits, commercial film permits across the National Park, Department of Interior lands, BLM lands, Forest Service lands. And even those on kind of the preservationist left don't like this. But slowly but surely, this administration is putting in guidelines which would assume that all activities, film activities, including you simply filming on your cell phone, could have the potential to be monetized. Therefore, your project is commercialized, commercial in nature. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of us, myself included. So we have a lot to break down with Ben today. I think you'll find this to be interesting. Listen with an open mind and let me know what you think. I would love to hear your feedback on our talk with Ben. Ben, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Hope all is well with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Why don't you introduce yourself and discuss what the Blue Ribbon Coalition does for those who may be unfamiliar yeah, thanks. So I am Ben Burr. I'm the executive director of the Blue Ribbon Coalition. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We've been operating since 1987. And in that nearly 40 years of experience, we've been challenging every kind of closure of public land that you can imagine. We do that through the courts. We do that through lobbying for better laws. And we do that through administrative advocacy, where we go and publicly comment and participate in the hundreds and hundreds of executive agency planning processes that happen that are what ultimately determine how public land gets managed. And so we're national. We're probably one of the biggest outdoor recreation-focused nonprofits doing this work. And there's a lot of work to do right now. They're really working hard to close down a lot of our public lands and so that's giving us a lot to do, unfortunately. Um, who, are, who are the recreationists you guys primarily deal with? Uh, we, I really deal with everybody at this point. I mean, there we throughout our history, it's mostly been motorized recreation users because they're the ones who get the most scrutiny from the regulators and the public land managers. And so our biggest membership base is going to be Jeep clubs and ATV clubs and dirt bike groups and um, we the overlanding crowd has started to become really engaged on these things where people just want to go dispersed camping out of a vehicle somewhere on public land. Uh, but that's been our normal 
cohort, but it just in the last year, I've been helping rock climbers who are getting their rock climbing areas shut down. Uh, we've done a lot of work with water sports, actually. We, we have a lot of water management issues out in the West with reservoirs and droughts and things like that, where we're trying to make sure that viable recreation access still is maintained so that the economic value that comes from that is still there and available for the communities that have had to now rely on outdoor recreation as one of the few economically viable ways that a community can survive in the West. I mean, the environmental groups have done a good job of really gutting and criminalizing some of our other ways of utilizing our natural resources. And so recreation's the last thing that these cities and <clears throat> towns and communities are relying on. And now even that's starting to get over-regulated and shut down. It's funny that these environmental groups pretend to be for public lands access, but yet they are shutting down opportunities for people uh, even to access that very said land. What are some current issues you guys are focusing on? I know when we were talking and we spoke on a panel together back in September in Dallas, you had mentioned um, they're trying to close down road access in Moab in Utah and other areas. So what are some of the issues and battles you guys are fighting currently? Yeah, Moab is probably one of our biggest ones right now. About a month ago, probably shortly after we met in Texas, uh, the BLM released a plan. So that's the Bureau of Land Management released a plan in Moab that's closing down 317 miles of, we call them off-road routes, uh, in one of the most popular areas in the country for outdoor recreation. And these are some, these are Jeep trails and things that have been part of events like the Easter Jeep Safari since the 50s and 60s. These are trails that go to some of the best campsites in Utah, uh, really cool overlook campsites that go to the edges of cliffs where you can look down and see like the big rivers, like the Green River. And this area has been on the list. Uh, there's a group called the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, and they've wanted this area to be designated as wilderness by Congress for decades now. And the problem with a wilderness designation by Congress is that really a, a land needs to have a certain amount of road density to be eligible for wilderness. And so if you have more than 5,000 contiguous acres without a road, then you have something that's eligible for wilderness. If you have roads traversing the landscape, even really primitive two-track dirt Jeep roads, that impairs the wilderness values and it makes it so they can't designate the wilderness. And so in order for them to create that wilderness, they have to shut the roads down. I call it wilderness laundering. And so they try to remove and close down the word the agency actually uses, obliterate the roads so that they're no longer there, they're no longer being used. And then that area is now eligible for a wilderness consideration where then the only people who can come in are those who want to come in by foot or sometimes horseback. And so we generally don't like wilderness designations at Blue Ribbon Coalition because they're so overly restrictive. It ties the, will, the land manager's hands. I mean, if you look at all the big forest fires and things that have happened in the West, a lot of that is once they get into the wilderness areas, they can't actively fight those fires anymore and they go out of control. Um, and so there's... We think you can still manage a landscape to preserve wildlife and to preserve the other natural resource values without the heavy-handed designation of a Wilderness Act designation. And so we are suing this 
Over this MOAB plan, we partnered with the Texas Public Policy Foundation and America First Legal. And we're going to challenge that decision because after reviewing it, we think they got a lot of things wrong. There were a lot of legal deficiencies. And that's just what we do is we really hold these agencies accountable when they close off our public access to public land. I don't think the Moab case or some of the issues you're highlighting are isolated cases because as you and your organization have been paying close attention to and me as well, I'm reading more into conservation areas, which are starting to pop up in states like Montana and Wyoming. And speaking of wilderness areas, that is one proposal it, in, with respect to Wyoming. They have four plans. Plan B uh, would include the establishment of like, I think half of the designated area would be an area of critical environmental concern, including a wilderness area. So would conservation areas fall into your bucket of issues of drawing awareness to, opposing because it seems like this is where a lot of this will be manifested, not only shutting off recreational opportunities, um, but also shutting off energy development and other multiple uses. But we're now seeing even uh, closures of recreational activity even fall under the so-called conservation areas. Is this something you guys are focusing on at Blue Ribbon Coalition? Uh, yeah, 100%. And so we are. We were one of the first organizations, I believe, to have released an action alert and an update about that Rock Springs plan in Wyoming it affects 3 million acres of public land in Wyoming. Uh, it's since been delayed on its public comment period because there is so much outcry um, within the government, like the state and local governments in Wyoming. Uh, Representative Hagman, who's the congresswoman from Wyoming, successfully passed last week in a voice vote in the House of Representatives a bill that would defund this planning effort. And I mean, that was something to pass out of the Senate as well. Um, and we're doing that, too, on the MOAP plan. Senator Mike Lee introduced a plan that would defund the planning effort for that travel plan. And that's something we're starting to see. Congress is really this is raising to their attention because it's shutting down so much of our public lands um, in Wyoming. You brought up the ACECs. And I know you guys, you and I talked about that conservation rule that the Bureau of Land Management introduced last summer. And that rule wanted to sell conservation leases to basically environmental NGOs, but they also wanted to prioritize the creation of areas of critical environmental concern. And when you read the rule, they said, well, this will be great for recreation. This won't hurt recreation. And they said, we'll still leave it open for casual use. And Blue Ribbon Coalition, we're the ones who have litigated what does the definition of casual use mean? And it basically means wilderness level access. You are on your feet, period. If you want to come into that area by motorized vehicle or any mechanized vehicle, mountain bike, um, they'll be restricting you because those don't fall into the, the categories of casual use. So they're using these terms very deceivingly. And I have personally helped some clients in Oregon who own cabins. They use these cabins for hunting. And they've been in their family since the early 1900s. This is private property, landlocked by Bureau of Land Management land that the Bureau of Land Management didn't own. They they acquired it from a timber company. This was, so this was, I mean, a lot of times people think BLM is the land that was left over that nobody wanted. Um, this was land that they acquired. And then just recently, after the, like in the last 20 years, they designated it an ACEC, um, through that process, they went and removed 
the logging road out of that area, which had 14 bridges engineered to handle logging truck traffic. And so the homeowners are like, well, whatever, we'll still just drive up in our four-wheel drive vehicles and cross the river instead of using the bridges. But then now they come in and say, well, this is an area of critical environmental concern. And so you aren't allowed to cross the river anymore because this is fish habitat. And I've crossed this river with on my feet because you can't go up there in a motorized vehicle anymore. And it's up to my knees. So if you think you can run over a fish in a fast flowing river that goes up two feet deep in a Jeep, like it's impossible. I don't think you could ever actually do it. Um, but they are restricting these private landowners from going to their properties, from using them for a base camp for their hunting that they've been doing. And it's all because I say, well, this is an ACEC, so our hands are tied. And they won't even, the road did get washed out, but now they won't let them go and maintain it. And the BLM won't maintain it. They say, oh, well, to go just grade out the road where it got washed out, uh, we would have to do substantial environmental impact studies. I'm like, you shouldn't have to do that for an already existing road. You, The agencies have the authority to maintain existing infrastructure without having to do additional environmental analysis. But they're still refusing to let these landowners and private property owners access their property for hunting. So if you're a hunter and you think, oh, ACECs are good because they keep everybody out, except for us, this administration and the folks who are behind this lockdown of our public and in this case, private lands, do not care about you being able to access your land. They care about keeping as many people off it as possible. And if you become the casualty in that process, they they will use these tools to hurt you too. And so we're very much opposed to turning half of that 3 million acre in Wyoming into ACECs. You have another problem going on in Montana where they're trying to create millions of acres of a conservation area in the Missouri River headwaters. And we're opposing that. Uh, we do about 300 actions a year. Not all of them are quite as substantial as this Rock Springs plan or the Mo the Moab plan or the Montana plan, but we're continuously working to educate our members and influence the agencies and preserve our legal standing to challenge bad decisions where they use all of these administrative tools that they have to lock the public out of our public land. Speak more to the hunting and fishing element, because I have a lot of anglers and hunters who listen, who are starting to have their ears perked about all these different land closures, they see what happens obviously on fish and wildlife service land. So I think some are becoming attuned to this more. Of course, you're going to have some of the more lefty contingent or those who may be more inclined with preservationist tendencies um, who may want to work with the administration because they think it'll benefit them and saying and dismissing, well, the ACEC won't affect us or, oh, this lead phase out is not bad. And I've been trying to drum into their minds that any incremental attack on either hunting or even uh, the level of access you get, um, whether if it's a simple gesture in in their mind, uh, something that is not as, let's say, uh, egregious as a lead phase up, but it is egregious in my personal opinion in most hunters and anglers. How do you, in your work with Blue Ribbon Coalition, if you have stakeholder conversations with them, how are you communicating to them that this will eventually affect them? Could you speak more to that since you'd alluded to it? Yeah. And so our membership level is very broad. And I, one mistake I think we make in these policy discussions is assuming that there are like 
distinctions between like a motorized recreation user and a non-motorized recreation user and a hunter and a non-hunter and a hunter and a motorized recreation user and a non-motor like my experience living in the west is you're usually all of the above i like motorized recreation i like non-motorized recreation um hunting and fishing my family does it so does everybody else's sometimes you want to i i have a friend who owns property in the book cliffs in Utah, you can't get to his property and other than in a helicopter or 35 miles on a pack mule train. And he has access to some of the best hunting grounds in Utah. And I value the fact that there are people who want that experience and they want to go in on a mule train and his area is in a designated roadless area. It, it borders up next to a tribal reservation. So it's very different level of access. And so I get that there are there are definitely the hunters who value that very primitive backcountry hunting experience where you're really going in on your own two feet and doing it that way or doing it on horseback. There are a lot of hunters who want to go take a fifth wheel camper out into a forest somewhere and camp for a week and go do some hunting too. But it's also a big social and family event. Like I look at the whole landscape of who's all out there using it. And our general mission statement is we want it to be as open as possible for everybody. Um, there's already a pretty well-established patchwork of different land use designations. And the thing we're worried about is the endless ratchet of restrictive land use designations. We are losing more and more and more access of all kinds at the same time that the demand for access is increasing. And so what you'll see is that in the long run, more and more people will be prohibited from actually accessing the experience that is their preferred experience. And so I found it's often hard to balance all of those. You're never going to make everybody happy, but there's enough land out there that I think you really could make most people happy, but we've taken so much of it offline and we're going to continue to do so if we don't stop this. Um, if you, like the 30 by 30 agenda, that is not anyone's friend who values the public land system and the generally open nature of the public's ability to go and recreate on that system in any way. And so I don't know if that fully speaks to your concern, if that has, raises additional questions for you. I would say we don't target primarily hunting and fishing groups other than we do work we'll kind of look at how they are positioning themselves on issues to inform our position to make sure, because we don't want to take a position that's adversarial to them because we generally are on their side. We want to be friends with them, but then you do sometimes run into conflict. And I also think there's a lot of what I call green decoy groups where environmentalists who are kind of the left leaning environmentalists have gone and created hunting and fishing groups that will go and advocate for pretty rigid and radical environmental policies. And they're kind of stealing the voice of the hunters and anglers that I know that actually live in like rural Utah where I live. Um, they tend to agree that having pro open public access on public land is the right approach and not having all these restrictive designations. So anytime I see a hunting and angling organization like advocating for a national monument or for wilderness areas or something like that, that starts to like send up some red flags for me because that in the long run, that's not going to work out to their benefit. Most of those designations do not account for wildlife management. I've seen it in Utah and Arizona when I went, 
and spoke to different stakeholders. And there's mm-hmm. a long track line of different actions where it doesn't benefit unless they force it. And there have been some new designations. But I thought you spoke to the to the issue well, because I know you guys primarily deal with slightly different recreationists, but it wouldn't harm you uh, to deal with hunters and anglers. And that's why I brought you on the program. And, and you spoke to other threats. We have talked about natural asset companies, which will encompass 30 by 30, and also these conservation areas, because in their framework, if the SEC gives this the green light um, to be independent entities that can operate, you'll have corporations, essentially financial asset managers that don't really have market inclinations. They're not really based in the free market. Assigning a value to public land and private land under conservation areas or their hybrid use uh, model that they're proposing, and it'll kick off both public land and undermine uh, private land ownership as well. So that that's something for everyone to be on the alert of. And we spoke about that with Margaret a few episodes ago. But then we have talked about also something that we think, I think preservationists may even want to work with us on, is kind of this quiet battle shaping out in the Biden administration, especially across Interior, Fish and Wildlife Service, and the other related agencies to make it increasingly difficult to film on public lands. Uh, basically, they want to go about the general notion that every project, including anything filmed on a cell phone, could be perceived as a commercial film project. Uh, why is that standard so uh, opaque and obtuse? And what um, areas already are starting to block uh, that type of filming access or, or make it really rigid, even more rigid? Because we've seen Alaska do this. I think it was Glacial Bay National Park. I was I was looking to see where the restrictions were going into place since they put a court case. Obviously, there was a court case to restrict um, people's ability to film on public lands and, and make them go through hurdles. I've seen it in Alaska. I haven't seen it anywhere else. But speak to the issue more and, and what this would do in terms of inhibiting access and also possibly infringing people's First Amendment rights. Yeah, so... There is a little bit of a history here. So in the 90s, Congress passed a bill to basically say, hey, if commercial film operations want to go produce commercial films on public land, then they have to go through a permitting process. And everyone's kind of like, well, that's reasonable. In the 90s, when they passed this, you didn't have an entire movie studio in your pocket. Uh, You actually had to show up with a movie studio. And you'd have to show up with a film crew and all of the things that come along with that, usually a large number of people. I mean, sometimes Hollywood would come out and film on public land and you'd have like a whole entourage of the, I mean, you watch the credits of a movie and you start to see how many people are out there in the production of it. And so everyone, I think everyone kind of looked at that and said, okay, yeah, this makes sense. If they're going to go out and create this impact on public land, they should have to get a permit. And fast forward now to the 2020s and you have all these social media platforms where you have people making very high quality professional content using pretty much the devices that can be carried on an individual person. And the agencies have stepped back and say, well, hold on, hold on. This is also commercial activity. They're putting it on these accounts. They're making money from ads or sponsorships or selling products or whatever. And so we started to see cases where the agencies were cracking down on individual content creators who were posting their individually produced content on social media platforms. Uh, We had a few folks reach out to us about that, that they were being prosecuted. And um, there's details along those lines that we'll be releasing publicly soon of who these cases were and what the actual impacts were. But let's just say the government's really kind of taken a giant leap away 
from the envisions envisioned by the First Amendment and the freedom of speech and that the government, the Congress, shall make no law infringing the freedom of speech. Now they're telling individual content creators, you have to come get a permit, our permission to speak if you're going to come use public lands. And so these cases that I had been involved in, I mean, they, things were escalating and then they just stopped. And it's because there was another case unfolding in Pennsylvania. A gentleman had been filming a documentary in Gettysburg National Park and a district court had ruled that the government had indeed violated his First Amendment rights by requiring him to get a film permit. Uh, then that got appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court where that ruling was overturned. And once that was overturned, it was basically the government now again had the authority to regulate this commercial filming activity, and they've now ratcheted back up. And what we've seen is the first place we saw this expressed was at Denali National Park in Alaska. The national park decided to update its filming regulations. And what they decided to do is that if you're in a group of five or more people, you need to get a commercial film permit, even if you're not planning to film commercially. But if you're in a group of five more people, so it's like, I can't, I guess I can't take a family video of my, me and my four kids <laughs> in Alley National Park without a permit, without the government's permission. Uh, they also said, even in the areas, there are parts of, um, there are parts of the park that are managed as wilderness. I don't, I'm not even sure that they were designated as wilderness, but they manage them as such. And they say, even in wilderness, an individual creator has to get a permit to create a film on their iPhone. And so when I tell you that wilderness designation is why we oppose it, it's just because it's so rigidly stupid that way. I don't, I mean, I would have to check this, but I don't know that you have to get a permit to set down an easel and paint a picture, but I do to pull my phone out of my pocket and take a picture. Um, I just, once these regulations start being fully enforced, I just think the public support for this law is just going to totally cave in. Like there's no way they're going to regulate the hundreds of millions of users that are posting content on public lands on social media. And so this, I think there still is the need to challenge this legally. I, this is a situation that because you have a circuit court ruling on this, if you can get a split ruling elsewhere, this probably goes to the Supreme court. Uh, Congress is already thinking of updating this Danes or no, Mansion and Barrasso, I think. Yeah, it's called the Film Act. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's part of that outdoor recreation bill they're running. And it's okay. It at least kind of carves out some space, but it still has like the group limitations, which I think are just totally arbitrary. Isn't it like uh, eight individuals? I think theirs something. is like eight, seven or eight people yeah. before it's considered a commercial project. Yeah. And so I look at this and I just say, you know what? The second I pull out my speech device phone, a camera, a camcorder, whatever it is. That's First Amendment protected activity. The government should stay out of it. If I'm impacting the environment in any way, more than the average user, if I go pay my entrance fee and go to a national park and I go hike on a trail, if I'm not creating more impact than if I wasn't filming, I shouldn't need a permit. As soon as I am going to be creating additional environmental impact above and beyond what a reasonable person would do, as a normal public land visitor, then okay, we're getting environmental impact permits, not film permits. The government should not regulate the activity of filming, period. That's First Amendment protected activity. 
protecting the environment of it, the land that it owns. Okay, we can talk about that. But then you have to be reasonable. You can't use that as a loophole for still cracking down on everybody because not everybody is causing that much of an impact. Most people are not. That and broad so, standard, yeah, that broad standard is extremely hard to enforce and it's a way for them to keep the public off of public lands. This is just a very sophisticated way of doing it. Yeah, and and even I mean the if, when you start to see the level of fines and <laughs> what an enforcement action looks like on somebody that did this the way they didn't want, it's probably an eighth amendment violation. And so it's and so I just have big problems just because I love the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and I think the government needs to stay out of that and not even flirt with it. Um, one thing you'll find also in these lawsuits is they talk about what's a public forum because doesn't just because I have the First Amendment doesn't mean I can go walk around Hill Air Force Base and film the F-35s. You know, I mean, there is a there is a compelling government interest to prevent the public from going in and documenting through film the happenings of an Air Force Base. Okay, so we to define what a public forum is. And so we asked if we could do a promotional activity at Glen Canyon National Park. We tried to get a film permit and they told us, oh, you can go to one of our First Amendment speech zones. <laughs> like on college campuses. <laughs> no, it was literally by the garbage dumpsters oh. and the outhouses where there are free speech zones at Glen Canyon National Park. And so I look at this and I think, well, the public land, public land should be a public domain. If it's BLM managed land or national parks or forests that are managed and the public can go and freely recreate. If you have, if you can go out to recreate there in any way, shape or form, even on your feet, then you're in something called the public domain and it's a public forum and you can use your content there, freedom of speech, unbarred by anything from the government. If you're going to cause environmental impact because you're showing up with a whole semi-truck full of Movio studio personnel and set dressings and equipment and lighting, then, okay, you need an environmental impact permit of some kind. But me out there wandering around public land doing in what everybody else is doing, I, that should not require any additional permitting from the government or rent seeking from the government. Like it just should, we'll be a better country if the government just stays out of that business. Absolutely. And if they were to go by this standard, I think I would be arrested too. <laughs> because I haven't followed it, um, even though I have like gone below the threshold and I haven't made the environment worse off than I left it. And I wasn't really using anything outside of my videographer and myself. And we we made sure everything was better. Um, but it really is so obtuse. And, and even having to go to the administrator. So I, I think the most challenging, you know, permission I got without having having to get a permit. It was in Bears Ears because that's obviously a hot contended, contentious mm -hmm. place. But the guy was giving me a hard time. I was just like, I'm telling you that I'm going with a commissioner. We're not going anywhere where the artifacts are. We're just filming about it. And it took him so long and he didn't process my request. And then finally, after some hand wringing, uh, he, he was like, yeah, you just, you know, you have my permission, no problem. But it was so difficult to work through him. Other people were fine. Like the Craters of the Moon folks were like, oh, don't worry about it. You didn't even need to ask for our permission, but here's, you know, an okay. So it depends upon, you know, what locality, what office. Um, but I still shouldn't have to worry about like, am I going to be, you know, fined yeah. or, or Most Americans punished. don't know which jurisdiction they're in when no. they're out of lands, like which field, even sometimes I don't know. And I follow this stuff closely. Um, it's not they shouldn't like have the to worry about us. They have to worry about thieves. For a county, it's like 
it just doesn't make sense for somebody to, and every office does kind of have their, and that's something you'll run into, like what you said. I mean, there might be something like, this isn't a problem. I've, I've never had a problem with this. Well, yeah, maybe you haven't. Doesn't mean other people have. They have. I know they have. I've talked to them. I've looked at the emails they've gotten from the agencies. And so if they'll do it to that person, one day it will be you. And or and they'll use it. I mean, how will you target 100 million people that are doing this? You won't. So you'll selectively target. And you'll. how will that happen? I mean, we saw how that happened with Twitter and the social media platforms. How do they decide who to censor, Gabriella? It's very easy how they decide. They'll decide, you know, these people don't agree with us. They're critical of us. So we will enforce mechanisms against them. Uh, since we're running out of time, Ben, how can people follow the efforts of Blue Ribbon Coalition, maybe get involved, uh, point people to resources and how they can engage with your organization, please? Yeah, thanks. So we, our website is sharetrails.org. And that's where we have all our updates on all these plans and things that we're proposing. We always do action alerts and educate you about how you can communicate with agencies and be aware of what we're doing. And if something's changing on public land management, we're usually covering it. So go to sharetrails.org to follow all of that. We're also on pretty much all social media platforms as Blue Ribbon Coalition. And we're super active on social media as well. And so that would be the other place where you could come find us um, on our day-to-day communications of everything we're working on. So social media, website, those are probably the best places to find us. All great resources. Trust me, everyone. Ben knows his stuff. This is a really fascinating subset of public lands access. And like we talk about here on the show relating to hunting and fishing access, incremental bans um, are not isolated to you know, just our activities. And and they may even extend to, you know, something as innocent sounding as, you know, banning trail access. It'll eventually hit sportsmen and women. So we've honed in on that po- point here on the show. Ben, thank you for reinforcing that and sharing what you guys are up to. And I hope you revisit with us again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.